If you like Area 45, you're going to enjoy the Hoover Institution's other podcasts, Uncommon Knowledge, The Classicist with Victor Davis Hanson, and The Libertarian with Richard Epstein. Subscribe now to the Hoover Podcast at hoover.org slash podcasts. That's hoover.org slash podcasts. Hoover Podcast, ideas defining a free society. Hello, it's Monday, January the 14th, and welcome to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast examining the policy avenues available to the 45th President of the United States. I'm Bill Whalen, a research fellow and the Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Fellow in Journalism here at the Hoover Institution. My guest today in our studio deep in the heart of Stanford University's campus is Dr. David Brady. Dave Brady is Hoover's Davies Family Fellow, Senior Fellow. He also holds the Bowen H. and Janice Arthur McCoy Professor of Political Science in the Graduate School of Business. Dr. Brady has been on continual appointment here at Stanford since 1986. That means that you have been now watching, you're now in the process of your ninth presidential election. Congratulations. Thank you. Or my condolences. (laughs) So Dave, this is the first Area 45 podcast of 2019, and you and I also have the distinction of having done the last podcast in 2018, and we did that podcast two days before the beginning of the government shutdown that a lot of people thought would not happen, but indeed has. It's now on its record 24th day. Are you surprised that it's gone this long? Uh, I am, but then, uh, frankly, I forgot about Donald Trump. Uh, Mostly, you want to get it over with. The Democratic, when the shutdown, uh, the last shutdown, the Democrats uh, read the polls pretty quickly. Right. And they shut it down. Uh, President Trump, is uh, cares less about the polls than than others. So yes, yeah, I was surprised. I thought they would have. Right. The Gingrich Clinton shutdown went 22 days. Right. So we're now into brave new territory here. Yes. What's your hunch on how long will it go? Uh, about as accurate as my hunch that it would be uh, settled uh, fairly quickly. The president seems to uh, have drawn the line in the sand. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Democrats seem to have done the sa- uh, same. I, I have heard from various people. I read a column uh, Sunday, I think, saying, "Well, why doesn't why not the Democrats come and say we'll be dealt to the table and give you the five billion you want for the wall?" Uh, they, they can't do that because that if they give him the five billion, then he comes out and says, "I'm the greatest negotiator in the world." They, they don't want that. Right. So in the public opinion polls in YouGov, we've asked uh, what, what's the favorite. We didn't, wasn't open-ended, but uh, the most popular response among our respondents was that it should be somewhere between 1.6, which the Democrats have proposed, and not the $5 billion that Trump wants. Mm-hmm. So they're looking, looks like they're looking for uh, somebody to make a move. Right. But who's going to make a move until either party's base the move. Exactly. I, so the Republic, I mean, it's, McConnell's saying exactly the right thing, right. right? McConnell's saying, I'm not going through all this if the president is going to sign it. So what has to happen, and right. it has to bubble up from within the Republican Party. Uh, I think it's ba- basically on the Republican members of Congress and the Senate to say, okay, we've got to have, uh, it's starting to hurt. Right. It's hurting our election chances. So we're, and the three Republican senators who've come out against it already, Collins and others, uh, they, they're up. In yeah. 2020. But, you know, that's an interesting aspect of the shutdown. Um, would you notice otherwise that the federal government is shut down? Mail is being delivered every day. So it's not like the USPS has gone on, on a strike. Tax returns are being processed as far as we know. Social Security, Medicaid, Medicare checks are going out. Now, there is a prospect that TSA agents may take a hike. And 
I imagine if that happens, Dave, then probably this thing gets resolved rather fast because now you're screwing up commerce in the country, but a lot of people, you know, travel as well. So that could be a problem. But, you know, also, ironically, immigration courts are shut down right now, so you're not processing immigration cases. Uh, no, I agree. The 75% right. uh, of the government was funded before this. Mm -hmm. The other 15% in terms of Social Security checks. So, uh, you know, you have to feel sorry for the 800,000 people, but the fact is there's 6.3 million unemployed in the United States at any given time and mm -hmm. with a low unemployment rate. 800,000 is just a little over 10% of that. So most people in YouGov asked surveys, do you know, in our surveys, they asked, do you know people who... Uh, have been affected in some way. That number's crawled up a little bit over the last two or three weeks, but it's pretty small. And I agree, when TSA starts to shut down, or not shut down, when it starts to slow things, there ha uh, you have to have, pe regular people have to have to see an effect. Right. Now, various parts of the press play it up, right? If you watch certain TV stations, it's already a tragedy. And if you read certain papers, it's already a tragedy. And if you read others, it's the opposite side. But I think for the average American, they have not yet seen the effects. Right. Uh, so the Washington Post ABC um, poll came out this weekend, Dave, and it asked the public question about who's who's to blame for this. And I'm going to read you the exact wording of the question that the Washington Post uh, ABC poll asked and get your thoughts both on the question and the results. Here's the wording. Quote, as you may know, the federal government has been partially shut down because Donald Trump and Republicans in Congress and Democrats in Congress cannot agree on laws about border security. Who do you think is mainly responsible for this situation? Now, you do polls, you write polls, so uh, am I reading too much? It's interesting, first of all, they say Donald Trump. I think it's a bias against Trump. They don't say President Trump. Right. Right, so is that a little soft bias? Because no, I think it is, and they right. named him first. Right. Uh, second, they say cannot agree on laws about border security. Accurate question? No, I, don't, I think that's wrong. It's not about. It's a money issue. Yeah. Ultimately, we we asked in the YouGov. We asked three ways. First, uh, who's most to blame? Right. Republicans in Congress, Democrats in Congress, mm -hmm. President Trump. Right. Uh, asked individually. So how much? How are they to blame? A lot, a little. Right. <clears throat> and then the last question is who's most to blame? Mm -hmm. So and that strikes me as a much a more objective way uh, to ask. And it turns out that. When you say a lot to blame, Democrats in Congress get a bunch of the blame. Right. There are some blame. Then you ask the second question, how much blame? Republicans get some but in Congress get some but less. And then the last one is Trump gets more than anybody right. on that. But then the last question is who's most to blame? And we're, uh, it was at 50, last poll I looked at it was 50, 50% Trump, 32% Democrat. Right. I asked a Donald Trump question, Dave, because I've worked in enough campaigns to know that when you're working against an incumbent, the one thing you don't do is you don't say Congressman Brady, you don't say Senator mm -hmm. Brady, you don't say President Brady, you don't give your opponent stature. So it just kind of struck me that they would not call him President Trump in the yeah. question. No, I agree. And, and naming him first mm -hmm. seems to put the onus. So what were the results of that? 53% blame Trump, 29% yeah. blame uh, Democrats, and 13% blame uh, both sides, hold them equally responsible. Yeah. What's curious about that, Dave, is the Washington Post uh, ABC poll also came out in 2013 when the shutdown happened, then the 16-day shutdown oh, yeah. between Obama and congressional Republicans. And in that poll, it was 53% blaming congressional Republicans, 29% blaming the Democratic president. So here we have a flip. In 2019, it's 53% blaming the Republican president, 29% blaming the Democratic Congress. Just the opposite, though, in 2013, where 53% blamed the congressional Republicans. So I don't know if there's something magical about 53 and 29, but that's where the country <laughs> seems to be on this question. Uh, 
I, part of it is, uh, so we get, as you might expect in the blame, 82% of Democrats blame president. And when on the final question, who's most to blame? 82% uh, blame um, Trump. Democrats blame Trump. 73% of Republicans blame uh, the, the Democratic Congress. But the point is, independents have begun to move against Trump. It's now 26% of independents blame uh, the Democratic Congress and 47% blame Trump and another 5% blame Republicans. So we've got about 52% of independents right. that are saying that. So, and I think in the Obama one, there are more Democrats than Republicans. So you have to weigh that in. And what I try and look at are those things is where, where are the independents going? Mm -hmm. And they've been moving uh, against uh, blaming Trump more than, uh, more than the Democrats. That's interesting. Um, I think there are two challenges for this White House moving forward right now. One is uh, you're in a situation, Dave, that calls for nuance in terms of how you address this. And if you saw his speech in the Oval Office last week, I thought it was just absolutely lacking in nuance in that regard. He spent a lot of time talking about criminal awfulness related to illegal immigration. I mean, it was harsh rhetoric for a president. This was his uh, introduction to the... That was the, yeah, the eight-minute speech he gave. Yeah, I thought the first yeah. three minutes were actually... Uh, pretty good, straightforward. And then he, right. he, he kind of went to the dark off. side on, yeah. on that. <laughs> right. Um, but what's interesting, Dave, is uh, the president and um, and his allies want to talk about a crisis on the border. And if you look at the Washington Post poll, uh, only about 24% of the public thinks it's a crisis. Only 49% of Republicans are willing to go along with crisis. Um, almost a majority want to call it a serious problem. Mm -hmm. uh, and only about half. You know, about half are on board with the idea of a national emergency. So maybe he needs to moderate the use of the word crisis and instead talk about the desperate situation or serious uh, situation. And the second thing, Dave, is just the president needs to engage in a history lesson with the American public and the idea of what a national emergency is. If you go back and do your homework, Bill Clinton declared 17 national emergencies while he was president. Mm -hmm. George W. Bush did 12. Barack Obama did 13. And presidents can kind of pick and choose what they think a national emergency right. is. Uh, for Bush 43, the 9-11 attack was a national emergency. I think we would agree with that. Uh, Barack Obama declared a national emergency in 2009 over the swine flu epidemic, which, you know, God rest those people who died from that yeah. disease, but is that a national emergency or not? I don't know. Anyway, presidents use this authority, so Trump needs to push back, I think, against the media narrative that he is doing something dangerous and unprecedented. Right. The um, uh, people who see the immigration issue as solely a, a Democratic win, mm -hmm. uh, I think, are wrong. Um, it's a two-edged sword. If if the issue is uh, breaking up families at the border, that that's a win for the Democrats. Mm -hmm. But as some Democrats have proposed, you want to get rid of ICE or reformulate it or have open borders and anyone can come in. Right. That's that's not a winner. Mm -hmm. And in, in our polls, um, when you ask which party's more capable of uh, dealing with the border issue, Republicans win that over Democrats. Right. That's because independents obviously go that way. Uh, but on the other hand, when you say who, which party would better deal with immigration as an issue, right. then the Democrats win that. Right. So it's not a. Um, so I agree. If if uh, the president would 
use history a little bit better, uh, however, explain it a little better, talk about it a little differently, it's not necessarily it's not necessarily a losing issue for Republicans. I think one other thing, Dave, is he needs to think about this. Let's put this in terms of what you do for a living. Professor Brady could give a very good lecture for his public policy class on what's going on here at the shutdown, just in terms of pure policy of what's going on at the border, what the president wants, what the Democrats want. Professor Brady, though, who also was taught at the business school, could talk about this because, look, in theory, the bank is open right now for a deal between Congress and the White House over immigration. If you wanted to sit down and actually begin the big fix, which eluded George Bush, which yep. Barack Obama did not want to get into, now is the time to do it. I agree. Uh, but the point you just made about it eluded George Bush, mm -hmm. and when Barack Obama and the Democrats had a veto-proof uh, Senate, right. they did not bring it up. Right. And that that's because... Once you start to get into the details of it, it, it is a tough issue. Right. But it does seem to me that at this point, there is room for comfort. They have DACA. They have all sorts of things that Democrats might be able to extract. Right. Uh, but so that's right. So now is yeah. the time. It looks as though theory, we have you, a better chance to make a deal now. Yeah. I mean, in theory, if you want a horse trade, Democrats want DACA. The president wants the border structure. Let's get off the word wall. It's called structure. Right. This is your horse trade. Yeah. It's, got, it's like watching baseball GMs get together at the winter meeting, and now you've got you know you've got players and pieces you can move back and forth. But both sides don't want to do it, Dave, and they're dug in. And I guess again they're dug in because neither base is screaming for a deal, and neither base is really screaming to get this done. No, no, no base is screaming, and the president, to be frank, has flip flopped on this. So the Senate passed a bill, yes, with the Republicans. I think it was a unanimous uh, mm -hmm. passage of a bill to keep the government open that McConnell led, and then the House, the new House passed it, but with a presidential veto, it wouldn't work, and so I think Senator McConnell has rightly said, right. I'm not negotiating anything until, unless the president signs off on it. So, mm -hmm. so it seems like there would be room for a deal, but, right. but we don't have one. So one thing this is doing is it's gumming up the works. You said something interesting before we came on the air. It has a Silicon Valley impact. In terms of businesses, it, it does. To get off the ground, IPOs. So, given the uh, market volatility lately, and uh, some you've been reading, uh, follow the new business news, some criticism of IPOs and the IPO culture, Lyft, uh, Uber, and a number of other uh, big IPOs, unicorns, are are pushing their uh, pushing their IPO forward. Right. And that stopped now because there's nobody in Washington to uh, respond to the papers and the questions, et cetera. So Uber and Lyft uh, were both, uh, some people were complaining about that, they want to move on. And you can see why they do want to move on uh, as quickly as possible. So that's a story in the New York Times. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know that the Wall Street Journal had it in, but you can't, so the papers' views on the world make a difference there. Right. Okay, so it's that factor. It's also coming up politics, though, in this regard. Two Democrats jumped in the presidential race over the weekend. Uh, Julian Castro, who... I'm glad you told me who the second one was. Well, Julian Castro, who is a Stanford grad, yes. he and his twin brother, Joaquin, uh, went to Stanford. You may or may not have taught them years ago. I know. It's, I think it's I all, may have. It's all a blur by now. Yes, it is. We'll have to do a separate podcast on people you taught, by the way. <laughs> 
Well, I guess it'd be a very short podcast. No, no, I mean, as, as I'll we, remember like three. As we get older and more Democrats filter through this process, you find more and more of a Stanford connection. Yeah. Joe Kennedy is a True. good example of yeah. that. Uh, but Castro jumped in, former HUD secretary, and so did Tulsi Gabbard, the congresswoman from Hawaii. So therein, Elizabeth Warren uh, announced her exploratory committee. That means she's running as well. Joe and Biden started to drink beer. And she Michelob, yeah, are you Michelob Ultra guy? Yeah, yep. The uh, yeah, yeah. When I drink beer, that's what I drink. <laughs> yeah, not to get too far off tangent, but um, <laughs> this, I just wrote a column for Forbes on this. Uh, there is a problem with presidential politics, and it's called Instagram. And Elizabeth yeah. Warren did an Instagram live chat where she decided to crack open a bottle of Michelob Ultra. And, you know, there are two things with it. One, she is trying very hard to relate to you and I. It's kind of like Hillary going into uh, Chipotle in 2016. And remember that where she walks in and she's she's, she's wearing sunglasses and all you have is on a surveillance camera. It looks like a bank robbery is yep. going on. Yep. Yep. Uh, so there she is. There's Elizabeth Warren sitting in the kitchen cracking over Michelob Ultra. Yep. And so because it's Elizabeth Warren, people immediately tee off on it. And the funniest comment I saw was, who drinks Michelob Ultra? You need to drink about 75 of them to get a buzz. Yes, that's right. <laughs> it's the drink for yoga practicing, yep. low-carb yep. people. <laughs> so there she is. And honest God, you couldn't have found a microbrew in New Hampshire. On yes, to, yeah. To or, there's all kinds of them in Massachusetts. Right. But what got me on the uh, Instagram track, Dave, is not just Elizabeth Warren, but it was Beto O'Rourke, the former congressman from Texas, the kind of the new the new it girl, if you will, in democratic mm -hmm. politics, the guy rising up the charts, he went to his dentist office in El Paso and did an Instagram uh, selfie sitting in his dentist chair with his mouth wide open. And celebrities do this kind of thing, but I don't know if this is necessarily presidential. No, I, I, uh, I blessedly remember the day uh, Jack Kennedy's campaign, was a long time ago, I know in 1960, where... Mm -hmm. He was uh, campaigning in some western state, and they wanted him to put on a, uh, a, hat, a cowboy hat. A uh, cowboy hat, and then later right. uh, mm -hmm. Native American headdress, right. mm -hmm. and he refused. Right. And then I remember, and the next, and the next thing I remember was uh, was Bill Clinton talking on MTV about what kind of underwear he wore. I, so it's it yeah. come a long way in Instagram exacerbates that process. So I think the last recorded film of Kennedy giving a speech is a talk he gave the morning of the assassination of Fort Worth before he goes yep. to Dallas. And at the end of the speech, they give him a Stetson to put on. And there's this kind of awkward moment where he's looking at the hat and everybody's laughing because they know the joke. And what does Kennedy say? He's so, so clever. He says, if you come up to the Oval Office, I'll put it on for you. <laughs> In other words, I'm going to wear it for yeah. you. Not the other Kennedy rule, by the way, was he never wanted to be filmed eating. Yes. And so there are stories of him campaigning and just kind of crouching down in a car and eating yep. a hot dog or something like that because yep. he recognized the pure inelegance yep. of, you know, being shown shoveling. Well, those days are gone. Those days are now. So now we're on Instagram where presidential candidates are flashing their teeth <laughs> into the camera yep. for you. So God help us all. But uh, getting back to topic here, though, those two Democrats jumped in the race and you have other Democrats lining up. Joe Biden might be in as soon as um, soon as Tuesday. But this is not permeating, Dave, and that's for a simple reason, I think. The, the Donald and Chuck and Nancy show in Washington is far more interesting than the Bernie and Joe and Kamala show in Iowa and New Hampshire right now. And as long as this government shutdown goes on, Democrats will have a problem. But they might have a problem beyond that, Dave. And Donald Trump, uh, let's take a moment to talk about Donald Trump. He is a very questionable manager of government. We can agree on that. He makes some policy choices that are not always wise, if you will. But if there is one thing the man is good at, the man is good at dominating media. And mm -hmm. how does he do it? By being a disruptor. 
and he goes onto Twitter and he throws a crazy tweet out in the dead of the night and the media go chasing it, or he says something strange and ad-libbing at a press conference or something like that, sends the media scurrying. He is great at clogging the airwaves and driving the conversation. And you might see more of this in 2019 where you have a very large Democratic field trying to get traction, trying to get noticed, trying to establish relationship with the public. At the same time, this guy in the White House doing his best to distract and disrupt. That's especially true if the Democrats in Congress push for impeachment. Right. Uh, because that will, that will, I, I mean, I think in some ways, I don't know if he'd enjoy that, but he would certainly be able to use it to his advantage in dominating and dominating the media. So, so I think that's true. Uh, that might not be so bad for the Democrats because the first, as you know, first three or four primaries are kind of retail, mm -hmm. and you got to actually meet real people. You right. can't do it with TV, so that might uh, that might that might help them. But in the end, uh, well, you have to. I actually have to take that back because that's in a field where there were normally four or five candidates that everybody knew, and in a mm -hmm. in a field of 19 candidates, whoever the congresswoman right. from Hawaii is, who's running. She certainly needs the media to get name recognition. Yes. She, she won't go to Iowa and find hundreds of people or thousands willing to talk to her right. simply because she's running. So it, it's a mixed field. For the, for, the, for the candidates with name recognition already, it might, be, it might not hurt them too much. Right. But for the people looking to break into it, that, that could be bad. It creates another challenge for the Democrats in this regard. The other thing which is being clogged up, constipated right now, is you have a new Congress and you have a new Democratic majority in the House, and now is their time to stand out and shine to talk about what it is they want to do. And with the government shutdown, that's not getting through. And again, getting back to the presidential situation, what are they going to do in the primaries when candidates are going to offer an agenda, a vision, and Donald Trump is throwing spitballs at them, daring them to make comments about him? How many debates are going to be driven just about conversations about Donald Trump rather than what it is that you want to do for the country? Right. The, I, so, the question, so the question was in 2018... Uh, it was about Donald. It was about Donald Trump, but right. it was about Donald Trump only. Right. There was no. He had no opponent on the Democratic side. He could make fun of. So while the while all the Democrats might want to run against Trump, mm -hmm. they can't. Right. And to the extent that they have proposals that are too far left, uh, and Trump can make fun of, uh, then then I think that that uh, that that will hurt them and. And the, the danger for the Democrats, and I, without mentioning without mentioning names, I uh, talked with a former student of mine who uh, is heads one of the big Democratic polling firms, and then uh, another friend of mine who not a, a, a friend of mine talked with a, a leading member of the New York Times, and both of them, one of them, bet my friend that Donald Trump would be reelected. And this is not a Trump supporter. And the other uh, was very concerned that the Democrats would blow it, i.e., and the reason they'd blow it is they uh, put somebody too far left. And they and uh, so there's a little talk about issues, uh, the economy, health care, uh, immigration. There are all those issues, if you uh, push too far one way, our double-edged double swords. Okay, when you say blow it, <clears throat> it sounds like you're suggesting it's a Democrats' race to win in 2020. And, I think it is. Okay, so is it the Democrats' race to win, Dave, because you just look at the map of 2016 and ask, how is he going to repeat Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, that sweep? 
Uh, or is it the Democrats' race to win because you look at his polling numbers and he just has weak, sagging numbers right so now? So we looked, uh, we did a, uh, I think of the podcast we did here, mm-hmm. we talked about the four gaps. So the gap, four gaps in American politics are the racial gap. Right. Uh, and 2018, the racial gap uh, actually went down. Mm-hmm. The difference, so if you, the racial gap is out of blacks, Asian Americans and Latinos vote compared to how the whites vote. That gap from 2016 went down because a significant number of whites uh, voted Democrat more more than in the past. The gender gap went down, and the reason is because uh, through six percent more women Mm -hmm. than in 2016 voted Democrat, but seven percent more men, white men, voted Democratic. And then the education gap, uh, that didn't exist in 2014, really, but then well, college graduates mm-hmm. uh, went about the same. It's about 8, 10 points more for the Democrats than non-college graduates. But the big jump was the vote, uh, was the youth vote, 16 to 29, 19-point mm-hmm. uh, gap between six, 18 to 29 and 65-plus. And for me, and, and that's one. And the second thing was the turnout was so much higher. Right. Went from 83 million in 2014 to 118 million. It's biggest turnout in 100 years right. in an off-year election. And why is that? So a big jump in that was uh, young people. Mm-hmm. And, there, and young people may, and I'm not making a compositional fallacy that mm-hmm. says, oh, young people will always vote Democratic. And not true. I remember they used to say that in the 70s, and then Ronald Reagan came along, and suddenly it was reversed. But I don't see anything between 2018 and 2020 that's right. going to make those young people vote for Donald Trump. So if you look at those gaps, and then we looked at the five states that Trump carried uh, by a lessened, by a very small margin, Arizona, Florida, Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. and we looked at what happened in 2018. Right. Uh, big increase, over twenty, over 30% increase in turnout. Mm-hmm. Democratic vote went up 8%. They uh, went from way down in House seats to even. They're up in governors. They're up in Senate seats. And then we looked at the seven states that went for Hillary narrowly, and the Democrats did even better there. So for those reasons, going in, I think it is theirs to lose, right. but they could. Right. You, you can't beat... You have to have a candidate that can win. Let's talk about one other gap, Dave, and that's Trump and the Republican Party. Yeah. Look, there are Republicans who are going to vote for him come hell or high water. Uh, and we can probably talk about, what, 30 35% of the country will stick with him no matter what. I do have, I did look at some data on that that was a little bit interesting. But there, but there is a portion of the Republican Party that we would call soft Trump or walk-up Trump or just ambivalent Trump. And the embodiment of this might be Willard Mitt Romney, who, since the time you and I last talked, went to Washington. He's now a Utah senator, and he also wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post in which he went after the president in no uncertain terms. And I think he kind of laid out the argument for these ambivalent Republicans where he didn't rip the president on any particular policy. He ripped him on one thing, and that was character. Yeah. So uh, in the polls... um, as we went to the uh, Republican, as we went to the, as the election in 2018, uh, we found that the number of Republicans, so they're strong, I strongly support Donald Trump and then right. I somewhat support him, the softer ones you're talking about. That number, the number of somewhat support was at 23%. 23. 
Okay. Today, it's at 34%. The number of Republicans who blame Trump more than the Democrats, uh, most to blame, 17%. And the number of Republicans who want Trump to run for election, run for election in 2020, has gone from 80 to 74 or 75. Right. So those. So you're exactly right about those. Uh, that, now that's that, certainly the average Democratic candidate. They're certainly going to vote. Uh, they're certainly going to vote for. I, I can't think of a Democrat. So that doesn't mean they're not going to vote for him. Right. But it does. It does tell you that there's some rumbling in the party, uh, and he might get he might get an opponent. He might get an opponent. Yeah, and it's an interesting contra uh, contradiction, Dave, in this regard. If you look back at that Washington Post ABC poll on Trump, uh, they asked you support the wall, and Republicans a year ago, 71% supported the wall. It's now up to 87%. Yeah. So you have a situation where Republicans are rallying behind their guy. Maybe in yep. part it's a concept, <clears throat> right. or maybe it's just the idea of our guys in a real battle against the other yep. parties. So we're going to stick with our guy. But the other data you just gave me suggests that while Trump may be winning that particular intellectual battle with Republicans, he is maybe losing the war that he's creating more and more uncertain Republicans, which I suspect gets back to what Mitt Romney was writing about, about the man's disposition, his character, his temperament. Yeah, I think it, I think it is... Okay, though though the somewhat support, I've tracked the some the people who say I somewhat support the president right from the beginning of his presidency. Right. They tend to, they tend to be uh, more free trade, uh, what we used to think of the Republicans as. Right. Uh, but but the main character is that when you ask them describe Trump, they're much more likely to uh, there are two things. They're much more likely to say I hope he doesn't run in 2020. And they're much more likely to, when you ask, we ask them, name one, give one word to describe Trump, and right. they're much more likely to say something that has to do with character. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious about the idea of a challenge to Trump from within the Republican Party, which people seem to think is going to happen. Um, but if you run against the man within your own party, Dave, what do you run on? Pat Buchanan tried it in 1992 yeah. against George H.W. Bush. Protectionism was yeah. the issue of trade. Ted Kennedy tried it in 1980 against Jimmy Carter, and what was it? It was about two things, really. Health care, but really the Kennedys. Fairness, yeah. Kennedys and fairness. Kennedy, just, you know, yep. Camelot. Ronald Reagan tried it in 1976 and was about conservatism, the Panama Canal. Yeah. Uh, Teddy Roosevelt tried it back in 1912, really kind of got it stolen yeah. from the party right yeah. others, and that was really about kind of internal Republican politics more than anything else. Um, if you're a Republican challenging Trump in 2020, though, if you don't have a policy beef, as we've seen in these other challenges, what do you run on? Well, I, I think that's right. They're gonna they're gonna try and run on character, mm -hmm. and uh, I, I don't think they'll win. Um, yeah. I, I agree with you. They're not gonna win on character. You have to have some issue. Mm -hmm. And Trump uh, on the economy, which is in spite of when you ask what the most important issue is to people. By the way, it was interesting uh, on that point when we moved into right just before the November election. Uh, the number one issue for Republicans, what's the most important issue facing the country, 29% uh, said immigration. immigration. And the next issue was the economy, which was like 10%. Right. So, so, he, uh, so, so, he, so, he had, so he had one on that. Uh, so I think without it, and I don't know what that issue is at this point. Uh, the, it could be the, if the economy were to falter. They could maybe do that. But the one thing we do know, if you think of every example you gave, pretty much they hurt the party. 
Right. Uh, Buchanan, uh, I think, hurt Bush's chances in uh, 92. Certainly, Teddy Roosevelt hurt his. Uh, he, he, without Teddy Roosevelt, Woodrow Wilson would not have been elected president. Uh, Reagan hurt Ford's chances in right. 76. Uh, and I forget Ted, what the other. Kennedy put a serious dent Yeah, Kennedy that. put a dent in yeah. Carter. So, so one thing happens is that, uh, but in most of those other cases, right. except you know, Roosevelt, in all of them, there was some policy issue right. that uh, drove that, and it split the party. And I think your comment, I thought about it before, but I think it's smart. I don't know that there's a policy split in the party right. yet that we can identify. You, you normally you'd be thinking of free trade and stuff like that, but I don't, I don't see that split. You it's also, just character. You need a large figure to make the challenge, also, Dave. Right. Ted Kennedy, a large figure in 1980. Right. Ronald Reagan, a very large figure in right. 1976. Pete McCloskey challenges Richard Nixon in 1972. Yeah, right, yeah. Good California. I didn't hurt much. Yeah. Didn't hurt much, and. Yeah. You know, <laughs> So well, so that no, that's a that's a that's a good point, and I don't, you know, the people who are they name mainly Flake is going to run on character. Uh, I don't think Romney's going to run. Uh, John Kasich. Kasich, you know, he had a shot. Uh, I don't see him doing it uh, well, again. But these are interesting candidates because Kasich Kasich is a guy who has some national name recognition. Yeah. God knows he's been on TV a lot. He likes the sound of his own voice. Smart guy. He, I he like also him. won all of one primary in 2016. Yes, his own right. state. It's on state, right? And not that big. And not that big. Yeah. And when the field shrunk after he won Ohio, yeah. he couldn't he couldn't no. really gain ground. So he's probably an overstayed national force. The one guy though who would stand out there as a large national player if he decided to do it would probably be Romney. But yes, I suspect that if Romney is smart about this, he'll do what he did before the 2016 election, where he was supposedly interested in in yes. running. And what did he do? He did a smart thing. He went around and he did what we'd call a listening tour, I guess. And he talked, I believe he talked to fundraisers, maybe yes. a few governors. And no, absolutely. It became pretty evident that there was not a market for Mitt Romney. No, he was out here and right. talked to fundraisers. And I actually know a couple of uh, donors here, one of them uh, Mormon, right. who basically wrote a letter and said, you've had your shot. Yeah. Now, he could run against Trump. Look, he's not up for re-election until 2024 yeah. in Utah. If he wants to run for another term, I don't know. Uh, that's a long time for a state to forgive you. And Utah's always had kind of a funny relationship with Trump anyway. Right. Uh, if you remember Ted yeah, Cruz. Yeah, he had Weaver. Yeah, almost. Right, Weaver and Ted Cruz yeah. carried it in 2016. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but if you met Romney running against Donald Trump, I think you're making one calculation, that I'm running against him to kill him in the general election, to soften him up so he'll lose in November, because I'm not going to take him out in the primaries. You're not. Uh, yeah. No, I agree. And that and that kills you for any fur further, uh, further, further opportunity. Well, it does. And again, it gets back to this sort of, um, sort of Faustian bargain Republicans debate with Trump, that I don't like the man's character. <laughs> there are a lot of yeah. things about him that make me uneasy. But I like the judges. I like the tax cuts. Right. I generally like his. I like his deregulation policy. So, even for a guy like Mitt Romney, he's going to have to decide: Do I want to challenge Trump, knowing that if I do this, I might open the door to a Democrat? And I'm looking at a Democratic presidency. Right, and for which he, uh, for which that portion of the party, he'd surely, he'd surely be blamed. Right. Uh, especially, especially if he runs in the primary, loses. And then well, Trump loses. And, and, let's, and let's take you. it a step further. He runs against him, and he really wounds Trump in the process, makes yeah. look Trump Trump looks weak. Trump is a very weak president running for re-election. It's a right. bad year in 2020 for Republicans. And only do the Republicans lose the White House, they lose the Senate. And now Mitt Romney is the minority in the Senate. Yeah, that's right. Right. <clears throat> that's right. So it, does, it doesn't look good. So there are a lot of calculations here. No, I, I, I agree. So, well, it should be a pretty interesting year. 
I think so. So uh, let's check on our final question here. When should we really start looking at presidential polling? This, it seems to me every Democratic poll shows the same. Joe Biden, Bernie yeah. Sanders, Elizabeth Warren. Name recognition. It's your name recognition polls. Yeah. So we have, uh, YouGov has uh, started the process uh, because we want a base. Uh, mm -hmm. It's not because, um, not because we think uh, they're realistic. It's just, just as you say, it's all name recognition. Right. But if you start getting those questions in, then then you got a base. And so you do you want a contact people. base of Democrats? You want a contact base, and we can mm -hmm. see who uh, who rotates out, and then we will run our. Uh, in uh, 2016, we ran the uh, same 5,000 people, and with right. doing that, then we're able to see the changes. And we made a mistake in 2016, and in, in 2015, I'm sorry, in May. Mm -hmm. When there were 19 Republican candidates, right. we didn't we didn't put Trump in mm -hmm. because, and then so he went from zero because he <laughs> he wasn't in our poll, right. and then in May, I mean in the June first the poll end of May and first of June he was the leader mm -hmm. with 17 point 17 percent he was uh, had about an eight ten point lead. So we're, we're going to start earlier asking the questions. I'm not going to pay much attention to them, but. Uh, but the question you asked, they're going in. The question right. you asked is put in, they're going in. So mm -hmm. I think we'll start a base now, but I, I don't know. When do you start paying attention to them? You're as good as this as me. June. Okay. Debates. First, yeah. so the Democrats have set up. Yeah. This, okay. is, this, this may be a brilliant idea. It may be a kamikaze mission. They've decided to hold 12 debates. Yep. Um, it sounds to me like maybe not a good idea. That may be just too many. How many of the Republicans had? They had. Five or six? They had, I seven. Think. No, they had more than that, I really? think. Um, but I know the Democrats had only six in 2016. Yeah. Bernie and Hillary only agreed to six. Well, they didn't have... Right. They didn't have a large field. Yeah. And she wasn't going to do more than six right. because, you know, if you're the front runner... Yeah, you don't you know, want to... You have, you know, you have to decide, first of all, which ones you're going to go to. Yeah. Uh, remember, Romney in 2012 had this decision. Yeah. Am I going to sit down with all these guys in the same room and give them stature or not? Yeah. And if I don't go, then I... Like a debate chicken and create that issue. So the Democrats, Dave, are going to do 12 starting in June. I think they're going to have the month of August off, but they're going to do 12, just you know, methodically, yeah. one each month until they get themselves, until they get themselves the nominee. They probably did that right because they have, they know they're going to have so many candidates. They know they have uh, they know they have a lot of candidates, and also it's a party under a lot of internal pressure. I think, given what happened in 2016 with the DNC putting yeah. its thumb on the scale for Hillary, so I think they want to create the. the and they have that it's a it's a fair field. They have, unlike the Republicans, um, they don't have very many. Win they have no winner take all. It's all right. proportional. Mm -hmm. And so when you have proportional, it makes it hard. Even when you win a state big, you, right. you don't get that and they've come many back, more votes. And they've come back on uh, superdelegates. And then, right. uh, so you have that. Then the second thing you have, the superdelegates aren't there. Mm -hmm. So they are going to have, and their, their strategy in the past was to, the first four primaries kind of got you down to two or three. And then they right. had, they focused on Super Tuesday being on Southern. Yeah. states because the southern democratic voters were more like the november voters and that got them somebody who was not as far left but th those days are gone they are so they don't have any bill clinton's uh running yeah. um blumenthal apparently is, is he he's actually so Blo bloomberg sorry michael bloomberg had yeah. uh, so michael bloomberg put a, a missive out on linkedin yeah. not instagram but linkedin looking for campaign workers yeah 
So he's, if he's not running, he's showing a lot of leg, and he's talked about spending a lot of money. Yep. Um, so a funny side on Bloomberg, Dave, is uh, one of my guilty pleasures in the summertime. We live in California, and I try to constantly explain to people the advantage of living in California, get past the taxes and all the regulatory yep. craziness and all that. Yep. In fact, I have to walk about 10 miles to smoke a cigar in public and not get yes. right. It's now a $250 <laughs> fine, by the way, to smoke a cigar in public in Palo Alto. It's what? A $250 fine. If you smoke a cigar in a high-populated area, which is the Stanford Mall, downtown University Avenue, they can throw a $250 ticket at you. How about my house? <laughs> that would incur the wrath of your wife. No, no. <laughs> I smoke I'd, cigars on my dad. I'd rather have the $250 fine than yeah. Carolyn Brady upset with me. <laughs> but, um, no, so one advantage of California Living, Dave, is that I like to take my dog for a walk in the afternoon, and I have a little app on my phone which gives me every Major League Baseball game, and so I listen to radio games yeah. in the afternoon. It's a great lost art, listening to yep. baseball on the radio. Yeah. Uh, and I like to listen to the Yankees in particular, Dave, because every Yankees broadcast is just, it's, crisis moment. You know, baseball's a long slog, 162 games. If the Yankees lose one game, we melt down. Yep. So it's just every game's ridiculously overblown. Anyway, I remember doing this the year Michael Bloomberg was running for re-election in New York, and he spent something like $110 million, I yep. think, to get re-elected. He advertised in every inning break in the Yankees game. You could not escape Bloomberg ads. <clears throat> so I think half the public probably voted for him because they liked him, and the others who voted for him just did out of submission. Yeah. <laughs> so he said he's willing to spend a lot of money and run. Interesting enough, by the way, somebody who's willing to spend a lot of money and not run is Tom Steyer, and we should probably close out with this. So Tom Steyer yeah. is not running for president. He took himself out of it but he's still putting $40 million into television for Need to Impeach, his internet uh, website, which has about 6 million followers on it now. So clearly he wants to make impeachment part of the conversation. Yeah, and there are a large number of uh, Democrats who wish to do the same thing. And that's right. why I think my former student, who is with a big-time Democratic polling firm in Washington, D.C. Mm -hmm. I think that's why he's worried that the Democrats may blow it. I mean, I don't know what's going to happen in the Mueller investigation, but I think before we started, you were saying there were, you were reading something about all the various forms of impeachment that could occur, the House and Senate, but... Right, so I was reading an article, Dave, uh, which uh, it's a very good article. It listed five scenarios for impeachment. Yeah. And there was a scenario that said the House votes to impeach him, the Senate convicts him. There's a scenario that said the Senate, um, the, the House does not vote to impeach him, it fails. Another one said the House votes to impeach, the Senate uh, does not vote to impeach, does not convict. In those scenario, the, the House impeaches, the Senate does not take it up, and so on and so forth. But the one thing missing in the story, Dave, it did not begin with explaining what exactly the House is voting on. And that, to me, is what I'm curious about as the Democrats move forward. Would they like to impeach the guy because they just purely hate him? Yeah, that's a done deal. They could do that on a straight party line vote. But that's kind of unusual precedent. It seems to me that you need some sort of legal argument, some sort of constitutional justification for doing right. it. And I don't know if it's alleged collusion or I don't know if it's just some other sort of fraud they found or something like that. They've got to find a reason to impeach the guy. No, I agree. And, they, and we'll see what the Mueller report has. But I don't see. And I saw, by the way, where the Republican attorney general nominee uh, is going to say in his testimony the He's Mueller. He's pro-Mueller. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. so, uh, so, yeah, so we'll see what Mueller says, but uh, I, I haven't heard anything that I know of coming, and I have no special expertise, but I have not heard anything yet that, out of that that would say to me, this is impeachable. No, not yet. Now, maybe yeah. the Democrats will be able to go through the report and find something they think impeachable, but 
We'll see. Anyway, it will not be an uneventful 2019, will it? No, no, it will not. Dave Brady enjoyed the conversation. You've been listening to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast on the policy avenues available to the 45th President of the United States. If you've been enjoying Area 45, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes. And if you wouldn't mind, please spread the word, get your friends to have a listen. The Hoover Institution is online at www.hoover.org. And while you're there, don't forget to sign up for Hoover's Daily Report, which delivers the best work of Dave Brady and his colleagues to your inbox weekdays. The Hoover Institution has Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter feeds. Our Twitter handle is at HooverInst. That's at Hoover, I-N-S-T. Dave Brady is not on Instagram and Twitter. I'm proud of that fact. I, however, am a glutton for punishment. I'm on Twitter. My Twitter handle is at HooverWhalen. That's at Hoover, W-H-A-L-E-N. For the Hoover Institution, this is Bill Whalen. We'll be back soon with another installment of Area 45. Until then, take care. As always, thanks for listening. For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on all major podcast platforms, including Apple, Google, Podbean, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Spotify. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.